Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Wanted to start the talk uh, with a a passage, a, a teaching that I love from uh, Suzuki Roshi from uh, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, one of the great Dharma classics. <clears throat> he says, <clears throat> in our scriptures, it is said there are four kinds of horses, excellent ones, good ones, poor ones, and bad ones. The best horse will run slow and fast, right and left, at the driver's will, before it sees the shadow of the whip. The second best will run as well as the first one does, just before the whip reaches its skin. The third one will run when it feels pain on its body. The fourth will run after the pain penetrates to the marrow of its bones. You can imagine how difficult it is for the fourth one to learn how to run. When we hear this story, almost all of us want to be the best horse. If it's impossible to be the best one, we want to be the second best. That is, I think, the usual understanding of this story and of practice. You may think that when you sit in meditation, you'll find out whether you're one of the best horses or one of the worst ones. Here, however, there is a misunderstanding of practice. If you think the aim of practice is to train you to become one of the best horses, you'll have a big problem. This is not the right understanding. If you practice meditation in the right way, it does not matter whether you are the best horse or the worst one. When you consider the compassion of the Buddha, how do you think the Buddha would feel about the four kinds of horses? He would probably have more compassion for the worst one than for the best one. When you are determined to practice meditation with the great mind of a Buddha, you will find the worst horse is often the most valuable one in your very imperfections, you will find the basis for your firm, way-seeking mind. Those who can sit perfectly physically usually take more time to obtain the true way of practice, the actual feeling of practice, the marrow of practice. But those who find great difficulties in practicing will find more meaning in it. So I think that sometimes the best horse may be the worst horse, and the worst horse can be the best one. Comforting, isn't it? <laughs> Unless you're one of those yogis that sits in full lotus. Um, there's hope for you yet, don't worry. I wonder if this is ringing true for you how uh, you're doing relative to everyone else. Uh, this is one of the <clears throat> blessings and challenges in 
uh, doing a retreat with a whole uh, group of people, uh, you get to see this comparing mind, this judging mind. Have you seen it at all? The Buddha called this tendency to uh, compare and judge ourselves in relationship to others. Uh, He had a a name for it. He called it mana, the conceit of I am. The conceit of I am. And uh, you might be comforted to know that um, it's around for a long time. In the classical stages of enlightenment, there are f- in the Theravadan model anyway, there are four stages of enlightenment. Um, the stream enterer, the once returner, the non-returner, and the fully enlightened being, the arhat. Comparing this conceit of I am is still around at the third stage of enlightenment. Not until you're fully enlightened is this what's called fetter gone. So you can take comfort, and if you see the comparing mind, you can think of it as, well, I'm no higher than third stage, anyway. (laughs) This is what uh, the Buddha had to say about this tendency. He says, one who thinks oneself equal to others or higher than them or lower for that very reason disputes but one who is unmoved under those three conditions for that person the no, the notions equal and superior or inferior do not exist <clears throat> For one who is freed from views such as these, there are no ties. But for one who is delivered, uh, for one who is delivered by understanding, there are no follies. But those who grasp after views and philosophical opinions, they wander about in the world, annoying people. (laughs) And who do you think we annoy most of all? with our comparing and our judging. Pretty obvious, isn't it? So I wanted to talk tonight about this tendency to judge ourselves versus others or ourselves versus some imaginary, unrealistic um, uh, measuring stick. The comparing and judging mind Mm-hmm. And uh, and perhaps how to work for it, to work with it. So uh, you might have seen. When for you uh, have you noticed that tendency c- to compare? Usually on retreats, it especially can happen in social kind of quote social situations, like for instance um, in the dining hall. Oh my goodness, look how much food they have on their plate. Oh, look at Miss Mindfulness so meticulously chewing her food. Um, Or in the walking, that's 
time that's rife with comparing. Have you noticed it? There you are walking and all of a sudden somebody goes really slowly and say, oh, wow. Or who are they trying to impress? Or somebody walks at a faster pace and the mind, it depends what time of day it is, can say either, you know, wow, they just are themselves. They can just be themselves, not trying to show anybody anything. Or don't they get it? Why don't they slow down? <clears throat> on, on one retreat, I, I noticed this tendency uh, to compare and present. Uh, some of you have heard this before. As, as I said, I, I used to really uh, love slow walking. Uh, I still do, and I can do it. Uh, but it just it was so sweet to go slowly. When you're in that groove and you're not trying, it's just that that can be, it can just be so um, interesting, fascinating. And I'd be all by myself, just lifting, moving, placing, really enjoying myself. Somebody else would come into my field and after a while, I started to see my mind, and what I would note, in all honesty, was lifting, moving, looking good, looking good, <laughs> lifting, looking good, because that was what was happening. That's what I saw was going on inside. <clears throat> and particularly in in this culture, we live in a tremendously competitive society, particularly in this United States culture. Um, you know, the, 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 the thing is, you know, who's number one? They, if you go to a football stadium, they, they sell big, big sponge uh, uh, hands with the number one. You know, wear a number one, wear a number one. Whatever it is, my... Uh, my football team or my basketball team is number one. Uh, um, but <clears throat> that's just the fact, yeah. Uh, <laughs> at least this year, yeah. Or uh, my, uh, my city, my area, my, um, my class, my ethnic background, my religion, whatever it is, um, whether or not you get into it, so many of us, mine is better. And just think of how much pain and suffering comes from separating ourselves out and thinking that somehow we're better than another group who might be thinking they're better my religion is better than your religion. Um, and all the wars, all the, all the killing, all the death over religion, all pointing to the mystery or my country, how sad it is. <clears throat> and it comes up in practice, as I said. And it comes up even if you're in the, 
uh, in the tar- the Dharma seat, the teacher seat. I was saying to Don uh, the other day, or maybe it was today, uh, when I first started teaching, you know, there was um, I'd be teaching these large retreats. This is you know, 30 plus years ago, and uh, Joseph Goldstein, probably most of you are familiar, just the clearest dharma. He'd give a dharma talk and just blow everyone's mind. And then Jack Cornfield would give a dharma talk and just weave this hypnotic spell over everyone. And then Sharon Salzberg would give a talk and people would be weeping with (laughs) loving kindness radiating out. And then I'd have to give the talk. (laughs) And I knew if I were in the audience, I'd be saying, get that guy off and get Goldstein back on. (laughs) It was really, really painful. Um, And as I I mentioned uh, to Don, um, I I went to Ramdas, who was one of my main teachers and mentors, uh, and I said, this is really painful. Uh, What can I do? It's, you know, I, I just, I know what I'd be feeling in in the audience. And he said, you know, don't try to be another Joseph Goldstein. He's already taken. Uh, Why don't you just be the best Jamie? I went by Jamie in those days. Why don't you just be the best Jamie Barras you can be? He might be enough. And it took me a while to, to realize, oh, I have my own way of saying things. Um, so there's, there's no escaping that. And it's something to, to really uh, honor and appreciate, and whether it's your accomplishments or comparing your body, what is, oh, my hair is so curly or my hair is so straight or my nose is this way or that way or my whatever it is or my intelligence or my creativity or uh, what, whatever it is, my accomplishments. Uh, even we can compare our neuroses. You know, when I was in college and I read a fair amount of existential kind of stuff and uh, I thought it was really, if you were messed up, you were deep, right? <laughs> so, you know, I was, I was deeper than many people, you know, I, like a little badge that I could wear. You know. And people who are happy, you know, oh, they must be shallow, uh, because I wasn't happy, you know. Here I am now teaching Awakening Joy, so things change, but whatever it is that we can, oops, we, we can compare and, and somehow don't measure up. And we do it also with, um, with our own particular standards, not even comparing to others, but comparing to where what we have experienced or what we think we should experience. And sometimes people come on retreat and they remember the, the last day of the last retreat when they finally settled down and it was so great. Yeah. And you come to the next retreat and you forget about the first three days that you were kind of slogging through. Say, oh, this isn't, this isn't so good. 
or everybody around is sitting like a Buddha and I'm here having a meltdown, you know. But you don't know what's going on in their minds. So we can compare ourselves to unrealistic standards or our past experience or others around us. It's, it's really hard. It's really painful. And it's also really a doorway to seeing the possibilities of freedom. Because you can get caught in all of these ideas of how you think it should be or you can see through how you are getting caught and catching yourself. Many of you are familiar with the hindrances, the five hindrances that are spoken of in the teachings that come to everyone who meditates. They are the wanting mind, desire, attachment, wanting a better experience, wanting something, wanting some object or some body, the wanting mind, aversion or ill will, sloth and torpor or dullness, sleepiness, restlessness or worry and agitation, and doubt. Have you had any of those? (laughs) If you have... Uh, that's just part of the deal. And the Buddha talks about it as one of the places to explore in the Satipatthana Sutta. He says, notice how the mind gets caught in these, uh, these states and how the mind can be freed. He says, notice when there's restlessness in the mind, not beat yourself up for it, but just see, oh, and here's a restless mind. Here's the lustful mind. Here's the free mind. Here's the mind at ease and peace. Here's the mind filled with doubt. This is a doorway to awakening. But if you have the idea, oh, if I'm really doing it right, I will be a hindrance-free yogi, you're really setting yourself up for suffering. So notice if your mind somehow says, if I'm suffering, I must be doing it wrong. This is a a great misunderstanding, as Suzuki Roshi says. Hindrances are part of the practice. And wise effort, which is what we're developing here, cultivating, part of wise effort is when an unwholesome state arises, unwholesome state, akusala, a state that is suffering, like greed, hatred, delusion, uh, jealousy, um, ill will, all, all of those states, he says one aspect of wise effort is to, uh, to learn how to work with them skillfully, to overcome them so they don't, um, uh, they don't confuse and create more suffering. That this is a very key part of practice. So learning to work with these states is uh, a real understanding that uh, there is suffering in the world. 
It's the first noble truth, the, the, the truth of dukkha. There's suffering in life. And this human realm is actually considered the perfect place to wake up. If you're familiar with the cosmology, there's different realms of existence, at least in the classical Buddhist um, uh, cosmology. There's hell realms and hungry ghost realms and and deva realms, uh, um, uh, heavenly realms, and there's the human realm. There are six realms altogether. And the human realm is said to be the best realm to wake up, even better than the heavenly realms, because it has both uh, joy and sorrow, because it has both happiness and suffering. And that in the heavenly realm, where there's just happiness, you don't get a chance to work with the suffering. You're just kind of lolling about, saying, oh, this is really nice for eons. You know, doesn't sound so bad, but, uh, but the human realm is the best one because you get a chance to be here with everything. And that's what we're doing here as we sit. You know, I just hope you understand and realize, you know, you sit here, let's see, yeah, the, the, the Buddha up here, he has his hand down, and actually it's, it's a kind of uh, statement of the, of the mudra just before the Buddha was enlightened when Mara is trying to um, knock him off of his seat that, uh, and he, he sends arrows, Mara's armies, to attack him, and the Buddha metaphorically has his hand up and the arrows turn to flowers. Or he sends beautiful nymphs to seduce him and the Buddha isn't moved. And he even sends uh, doubt and says, who do you think you are? What gives you the right to think you can be enlightened? And the Buddha touches the, the earth and he's, as the earth is my witness for all the lifetimes of work I've done, I have a right to be here. And that's just the moment before he's enlightened. And with that, as the earth witnesses, Mara goes away and the Buddha completely wakes up. So there's the Buddha here for Mara's armies and the, 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 the delicious, seductive um, um, uh, treats and, and uh, things that will, will tempt him And he sits through it all. And this is what we're doing. We're sitting here, willing to be here with it all. And here is sorrow. Yes, and here is sorrow. Here is sad Buddha. And here is joy. And here is joyful Buddha. And here is fear or confusion or doubt or love or joy or excitement. And here we are able to sit through it all and meet it all with balance and wisdom and kindness. So that's what we're doing, being willing to be with it all. And when you're having a hard time, you're not doing it wrong. This is what the Dharma is giving you in that moment to open up to and wake up to. In one teaching, there's a, a beautiful teaching that I love called Transcendental Dependent Arising, 
where the Buddha says that suffering, this is one of the lists, one of the many lists, it's a really important list. It, it's the list that gets you off the wheel of samsara, of dependent origination. And it starts with suffering, which is the end of dependent, liberation, uh, dependent origination, old age, sickness, and death conflated into suffering. And he says, suffering can be the causative factor for faith to arise. Faith can lead to gladness, which can lead to joy, happiness, peace, contentment, all the way to full liberation. Suffering, though, can lead to faith. Not always. It can also lead to bitterness and fear and contraction. But I want to ask you, how many people here have been motivated by suffering in their life to look for deeper answers and have brought them to a deeper quest for, uh, for the Dharma and practice? Look around. That's how it works. Because suffering wakes us up from our complacency and makes us realize we don't have control over what's going on. How can I meet this in a wise, kind way? So I wouldn't wish it on people, but when they're going through a hard time in retreat, it's, it's our job to just hold the container and say, it's okay, you have a whole lot more inside of you than you realized. You have the capacity to open up to this too. And that's how you find confidence and trust and power that you didn't know you had. And you wouldn't know it otherwise unless you were able to and willing to uh, face it and encounter it. This is a, a poem um, by Jennifer Wellwood called Unconditional that describes this. She says, Willing to experience aloneness, I discover connection everywhere. Turning to face my fear, I meet the warrior who lives within. Opening to my loss, I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end. Each condition I flee from pursues me. Each condition I welcome transforms me and becomes itself transformed into its radiant, jewel-like essence. I bow to the one who has made it so, who has crafted this master game. To play it is pure delight. To honor its form, true devotion. That's what we're doing here. Each condition I flee from pursues me. Each condition I welcome transforms me. So this comparing mind or this judging mind, particularly, this is where we get caught in thinking we're somehow doing it wrong or not doing it good enough. 
don't get um, tricked by that thought. It's just a thought that the mind creates. Because when you can open to what's happening and say, okay, and this is what this moment is, you don't need to fix anything. Just meet it with courage and kindness and clarity and trust in the awareness. And when you think that you're not good enough, when that judging mind comes and says, oh, you know, who am I? Um, you're really missing the point and you're taking this sense of self to be real because you don't control the show. Uh, I love this, uh, this line from uh, Course in Miracles, a beautiful Christian uh, body of, of wisdom that says, believing in your littleness is arrogant because it's preferring your own opinion to God's. Believing in your littleness is arrogant because it's preferring your own opinion to God's. Oh no, not me. Yes, in fact, I'll, I'll read, I'm tempted now to read this, this poem that, uh, that I love, another poem called Awakening Now by Dana Falls, my favorite Dharma poet. She says, Why wait for your awakening? The moment your eyes are open, seize the day. Would you hold back when the beloved beckons? Would you deliver your litany of sins like a child's collection of seashells prized and labeled? No, I can't step across the threshold, you say, eyes downcast. I'm not worthy, I'm afraid, and my motives aren't pure. I'm not perfect, and surely I haven't practiced nearly enough. My meditation isn't deep, and my prayers are sometimes insincere. I still chew my fingernails, and the refrigerator isn't clean. (laughs) Do you value your reasons for staying small more than the light shining through the open door? Forgive yourself. Now is the only time you have to be whole. Now is the sole moment that exists to live in the light of your true self. Perfection is not a prerequisite for anything but pain. Please, oh please, don't continue to believe in your disbelief. This is the day of your awakening. Forgive yourself. Now is the only time you have to be whole. Now is the sole moment that exists to live in the light of your true self. Perfection is not a prerequisite for anything but pain. This is from... uh, Great Tibetan master, Nyoshal Kempo. Buddha nature, the essence of awakened enlightenment itself, is present in everyone. Its essence is forever pure and flawless. Those who recognize their true nature are enlightened. Those who ignore it or overlook it are deluded. 
There's no way to enlightenment other than by recognizing this Buddha nature and authentically identifying it within one's own stream of being. So, how to work with uh, this judging mind, this comparing mind, this somehow sense of not being good enough when it comes up? Because it does come up. You know, unless you're fully enlightened, it, it comes up. So how to work with it? I wanted to uh, share with you a, a few thoughts and, and, and tips on, on, on it that, um, that you probably know for yourself. So partly I'm, I'm just reminding you what you already know. <clears throat> First of all, to see that those thoughts that keep on coming up that say not good enough or uh, when will you get it or oh look at what what everybody else is doing they're just habits of mind they've been practiced for a whole long time and so not to think that you're going to undo it all at once that this is a, a process of learning more and more to wake up and to hold those habits and patterns wisely. Let's see. I wonder if I should tell the story. I'll, I'll share with you a story. Some of you have uh, heard this before. Um, but um, it was my turning point in um, in really forgiving myself and seeing the habit of of mind it was on my uh, my first three month retreat and uh, I was as I said really in love with practice and I, I happened to be all by myself and doing walking meditation in in the uh, the the walking room at uh, at IMS in Massachusetts, and I was going in that slow mode and really enjoying it. And I just decided to play a game to see how slowly I could go. Okay, I and I pretended if you're old enough to remember that I was Marcel Marceau, the the great French mime, just seeing how does he do it, you know, and it's just creeping crawling, so sweet. And in to the walking room comes this yogi who just came from the outside. Because in the first, I think two years, certainly in the first year, I think it was the first two years, they tacked on a two-week retreat towards the end of the three-month course. They didn't continue doing that after a while. And you can really feel somebody's energy when they've just come in from the outside. And this was one of those yogis. It was clear. Uh, But there I was doing my game. And I wasn't going to change my game. Just, well, I'm just going to keep on going. And this person was walking back and forth and after about two minutes, they bolted out of the, 
out of the room in what I was sure was the comparing. And as she crossed my field of vision, the thought came to me, wow, I really blew her mind. (laughs) She must think I am a great yogi. And then I heard it. I heard that thought in all its glory, in all its ego and presentation and look at me and aren't I wonderful and I hope I get seen and, and it was awful. It was really awful. And I started attacking myself what a phony you are. You've been practicing for two and a half months and you think you've gotten somewhere. You're just filled with ego. This is disgusting. And I became this caged tiger and saying, I'm never going to get out of this mind. I'll never get out. Who am I fooling? And I did that. I did that for about, oh, five or ten minutes. Just, God, And then the thought occurred to me the millions of times that I'd had that thought. In this lifetime, and I was starting to believe in more than one lifetime by by now, and the millions of times I had it, but not caught it because I wasn't aware enough to catch it. But here I caught it and saw it and it was so familiar. It was just so much a part of me. And when I reflected on that, how deep that habit was, this genuine wave of compassion came over me. Just saying, you've been practicing this a long time. You are giving 110% effort. This will take a while, but be kind to yourself. And... um, It was a moment I'll never forget because I really saw this is just habits. This is just patterns of mind that I need to, and I'm learning, I'm in the process of learning a new way. So that's the first thing, to bring some kindness and compassion to those habits. And one technique that I want to Uh, offer you, some of you are familiar with this, is a very simple but effective way to first hold those um, disturbing, troubling thoughts. And this is um, basically practicing self-compassion. And this is uh, called the mindful self-compassion break uh, developed by Kristen Neff and Christopher Germer. Uh, Kristen Neff wrote a book called Self-Compassion and Chris Germer wrote The Mindful Way to Self-Compassion. And they're meditators in our community who are also um, researchers and and scientists. And uh, Chris Germer is in Harvard and Kristen Neff is in uh, University of Texas, Austin. And they've packaged in a very effective way Um, the practice towards self-compassion. So this is the self-compassion break. It's very simple and very effective. Okay, And I 
invite you to just try it and do it with me. Suppose you really have given yourself a hard time. Okay, first put your hand on your heart. And this right away um, calms down the system and physiologically soothes the body. It releases oxytocin and uh, stimulates the vagus nerve, the nerve of compassion, and just generally calms down the whole organism. So just first feel that and that tenderness. And then they suggest three different reflections. I'll, I'll write them on the board if, if you like, and you can use your own variations of, of the words. But the first reflection is just acknowledging you're having a hard time. Oh, this is suffering, or oh, this is really hard. And that's a moment of mindfulness. This is, this is hard. And then the second reflection is seeing the commonality of life, that you're not alone. And they suggest saying, oh, suffering is part of life. And I like to think of all the people in the world that are going through what I'm going through when I'm having a hard time. Whether it's wanting or sadness or fear or anger or whatever. I'm not alone in this. Suffering is a part of life, part of being human. And then the third reflection is, um, may I hold my suffering or my sorrow with kindness and compassion. So suffering is a part of life. Sorry, uh, this is suffering or this is hard. Suffering is a part of life, and may I hold my, my suffering with kindness and compassion. Or whatever words resonate for you, and even if you forget the words, just to have your hand on your heart is enough. And as you, if you still have it on, I like to think of both being the one who is receiving that, that reassurance and that comforting, that little one inside of us, and also the wise one that can hold him or her. So there's a kind of coming into wholeness. Hmm. I'm hurting inside and I have what I need to, um, to hold it. Okay, you can, if you like, you can open your eyes. You know, you, as I said in one of the groups, you can, you can spend the whole retreat like this, if you're giving yourself a hard time, it'll be well time well spent. Yeah. Or the variation that I, I mentioned this morning, you know, and I when I had uh, I shared about hand to cheek, that was my main practice for a couple of years, really. And then every time it, it changed after a while. It wasn't that I touched did this all the time, but the tone started naturally becoming practiced in a kinder tone. And then it became kind of exciting. Every time I would be judging was a chance to practice compassion. Instead of, oh, there I am judging again. Oh, it's okay, dear. You know? it's, and there, it's Kuan Yin doing the noticing. So notice the tone that you recognize 
things in. And instead of feeling frustrated that it's happening, Pema Chodron has this line that I love. She says, take delight in that which sees the dukkha. Take delight in the awareness that sees that you're suffering. Rather than, oh, there I am, a pathetic mess again. Oh, I'm seeing it. It's like the Buddha saying, oh, I see you, Mara. And letting go of that need to be perfect. There's a line, one of my favorite lines from my favorite piece of wisdom, the Third Zen Patriarch, Verses on the Faith Mind by uh, uh, Sengstan, the Third Zen Patriarch of China. He says, to live in the highest realization is to be without anxiety about non-perfection. That's when you know you've really made it. To be without anxiety about non-perfection. Okay. So let go of being perfect. Just be yourself. <clears throat> Another way to work with the uh, the judging mind or the frustrated um, comparing mind, besides first holding it, is to be mindful, is to bring our practice right to those painful feelings. Whatever it is, whether it's judgment or comparing or wanting or any one of those unwholesome states or uh, states of emotional reaction, that we hold that, hold them with mindfulness. As the Buddha said, oh, to know the restless mind is the restless mind. And another technique that many of you are familiar with, but I just want to remind those and those who aren't familiar with, share for the first time, and we'll be incorporating this in the, in the, um, uh, the instructions tomorrow as we start to work with emotions and, and the whole mental realm is to, um, is to know what's happening and give it permission to be here and let yourself feel what's here without taking it personally, without identifying with it that is taking ownership of it. And there's an acronym that describes that process that uh, many of you are probably familiar with, the word RAIN, R-A-I-N. First to, when you're going through a lot of feelings, first to just recognize, oh, what am I feeling now? Oh, this is sadness, or this is loneliness, or this is anger. And just naming it, you're going from the activated limbic system and the amygdala and that's firing and contracted to the neocortex that says, oh, this is what's going on. And you're actually deactivating the, uh, the, the triggering response, the sympathetic uh, nervous system response. So first to recognize, oh, this is sadness. And then the A is allow or accept. That is, give permission for it to be here in a, in a wise way. Okay, let's just feel this and 
let by and 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 not run away but allow it to be here the i is investigate or bring an interest to it be curious let's see let me feel what sadness is like and while you are curious about it you can't be adding hoping that it will go away with aversion and it's the aversion that keeps it locked in so to just let yourself explore feel the landscape of that feeling and then the n which is really uh, embedded in the whole process is stands for non-identification or not taking it personally which is just realizing this is part of being human oh yeah people get sad it's not that i i am such a sad pathetic person here's sadness arising in this field of awareness and the awareness can hold it so to uh to bring directly your practice right onto the feelings and saying oh yeah or this is judging or this is comparing it's okay and let myself not be afraid to touch it that which i welcome uh transforms me but if you're not ready to or it's too much to open up to it's not that you have to stay there and you you touch it for a little okay maybe for the next minute let me feel this and go back and forth just a little bit touching and then uh if you need to back off back off touching back off or if it's too much to open up to sounds or uh go for a good walk and get in uh get out in nature because then the next way to work with these difficult states is besides holding them with compassion or feeling um feeling them directly with mindfulness is getting a sense of what do i need right now to bring myself into balance so i can meet this moment and that requires you listening inside not to some formula that somebody else gives but just getting in touch with your truth what do i really need in this moment oh i might need to go for a walk oh i might need to just be here and and um and stretch myself a little bit there's no right answer it's just listening to the truth in inside right now in this moment we can get so caught up in our judgments of how we're doing uh by evaluating what's going on in practice as as i said uh, early on in the talk effort is a very key issue in practice this definitely takes some effort and willingness to show up but it has to be a balanced effort and rather than evaluating how you're doing by what's going on in any moment oh i'm really clear now i must be doing it okay oh i'm really um having an emotional meltdown i must be not doing it okay don't go there on on one retreat actually i'm just remembering one of my first retreats everybody around 
was having catharsis and they were going through tissues like, you know, it was going out of style. And I was just sitting and feeling my breath go in and out. And my comparing mind said, what's going on? I'm, I'm missing something. And I went running to Joseph and saying, uh, I don't know, everybody is having these deep emotional releases and I'm just sitting here watching my breath. You know, what, what, what am I? And he said, don't go looking for trouble. It'll find you soon enough. <laughs> Which it did eventually. But if you're having some idea of what good practice should be like, let go of it. If you want to get in touch with your effort rather than looking at the result, the external result, keep on connecting with your sincerity of heart. That's your key ingredient. And it might look different in different moments. And it might call you to do different, uh, uh, different responses or strategies, just seeing what you're doing. Oh, I'm doing this to support my practice. Whatever it is, trust it if that's your intention behind your, your action. So with all of this, I, I hope you get that the comparing mind and the judging mind is just a mental fabrication. This is not the truth not to be believed, you are having just the retreat that the Dharma has ordered for you. Isn't that wonderful? You can't do it wrong. Especially if your friends ask you when you go back, well, how did you do? You know, <laughs> I did it perfectly. <laughs> just the way it was supposed to. Because it's not what's happening that is important. We're cultivating a wise relationship to whatever is happening. And as I said early on, you're not trying to make any one peak experience occur. You're learning to be here for the ride. Just like learning to be for your life, for the ups and downs of your life. It's a very profound thing that you're doing here. And the key is to uh, just trust in the awareness. You've seen already probably something got you here that said this might be a good thing to do. Keep on trusting. The awareness is what frees. <clears throat> and when you see that, you realize there's no comparing myself with others. There's no comparison. You are just perfectly who you are. So let's sit for a few moments.
Thank you very much for your attention. Mm. Mm.